So hello and welcome to another installment of the Bacon McKenzie podcast series, The Trainee Test. I'm your host for this episode, Harry Clark. In this podcast series, you'll get a first-hand insight into what being a trainee at Bakers is all about. And today, I'm joined by three trainees and a partner who'll be working their way through a legal scenario. So thanks for everyone for joining. Please feel free to go around and introduce yourselves. Thanks, Harry. I, I might as well make a start. My name is uh, Alex Genoff. I'm a third seat um, trainee here at Bakers, having done uh, banking tax and currently sat at uh, corporate EMI. Uh, I look forward to taking part. Hi everyone, I'm Amber Parslow. I'm a future trainee solicitor here at Baker McKenzie and I will be starting in 2022 after completing the LPC. Hello everyone, I'm Matt. I'm a second seat trainee here at Baker McKenzie. I'm currently in employment and I started my training contract in corporate M&A in March this year. Hi everyone, my name is Janan Crozier. I'm a corporate partner sitting in our M&A team. I have been with Baker McKenzie since I was a trainee, which was a long time ago. Uh, I'm not going to give you a number of years. But um, during that time, I have also spent time in our Moscow office, which was very cold, and our Sydney office, which was thankfully very warm. Um, I focus primarily on large, complex carve-out transactions. And I'm frankly very excited today to be here with you for this podcast. Thanks so much. Perfect. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to take part in this test today. Uh, trainees, I don't know if this is a callback to interviews and case studies and everything else, if there's butterflies in your stomach. But just before we get started with the test, how's everyone feeling about the uh, challenge ahead today? It's bringing back all the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> it really is the same anxiety. I thought I'd left it long you know, behind, but it seems to be uh, still there, still alive and kicking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I didn't know those butterflies were still in my stomach, but they've just come straight back to life for this. So, yeah, very strange. Um, it is like being back that little applicant trying to get in the doors. So, yeah, I, I got given really good advice when I was at university a bit to to when I'm applying for interviews to just make the butterflies uh, fly in formation. So I'm basically recalling all that all that advice, that useful tips on how to handle this. <laughs> I think the key point here is to remember, you all have jobs, don't worry. Um, but I, I also have to say, I'm slightly excited and also a little bit nervous about what Harry, as our podcast compare for today, is going to be asking us. So looking forward to it all, and I'm sure we're going to have great fun. <laughs> well, not to give too much away, but I might have the cheat sheet behind the mic and uh, referencing it throughout as well. But no, thank you for everyone for coming on. So let's get straight into it. Um, uh, Janan, if you want to get started with sort of giving the trainees some brief overviews to the task they've got ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a fairly realistic scenario, which is uh, the partner, uh, me, has come in and said, we have a client coming into the office today. We'd really like you to look at an agreement and be ready to respond to some questions that the clients pose to us. In our scenario today, we are acting for a client called Filmflix UK Limited. This is a private company incorporated under the laws of England and Wales. We um, are acting in the, for this client in the capacity of they would like to enter into a joint venture arrangement and uh, they would like to do so with a partner called Tusk Developments, Inc. 
and that is a US uh, Delaware incorporated uh, party. And they would like to enter into a joint venture in respect of a company called Space UK Limited, which is also a England and Wales company. And excitingly, that company is going to develop a launch site here in the UK, in Hull to be specific. And the intention is that Filmflix, our client, would like to take a 20% share in Space UK, with Tusk owning the remaining 80%. And at the moment, this company, Space UK, has a share capital of two ordinary £1 shares, so not a lot of share capital there, and is currently wholly owned by Tusk. So through our arrangement, we will need to take a 20% stake. Um, As is common in any joint venture arrangement, what we will need to do is enter into a joint venture agreement which governs that relationship between the two parties going forwards. And as such, the agreement, the joint venture agreement, will need to contain certain provisions. And we have a draft agreement that the parties have started uh, preparing between themselves, which sets out certain key provisions. And the uh, provisions that you have in front of you are reflective of those that you would commonly see in a joint venture agreement. So hopefully you've had an opportunity to read through all of that uh, and it's fairly self-explanatory, but we can walk through it as we get into the Q&A. Fantastic. So trainees, any last clarifying questions you want to ask of the task that's been set of you before you're set off to get cracking? No, okay, they look confident. So trainees, uh, your time will start now for the trainee test. Best of luck. Uh, And Janelle and I are going to have a little chat about what she's looking for as a partner in this scenario. Oh, bless them. I didn't realise they hadn't ever seen the case study before. That's why they all look slightly sweaty. They're all on edge. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a pretty good deal of just listening in on all this, I must admit. I'd be terrified if I was actually doing it. (laughs) So thanks for joining me out of earshot of the others as they're getting cracking on this trainee test. Um, I think it'd be great to just sort of understand your thoughts on this from a partner perspective. Um, obviously, you've given a great overview for the trainees and the tasks they'll be doing. But what's your sort of first thoughts on this from a, from a partner perspective? I mean, I think it's interesting because I think exercises like this really give people the opportunity to uh, encounter what really can happen uh, from a client scenario perspective. I think the key thing for them to remember is, first of all, this is a client And we want to make sure that our clients feel taken care of, that they're getting excellent advice uh, and that we're listening to them. You know, a big part of this is to make sure that not only do we read the words on the paper, but that we listen to the client and make sure that we're fully aware of what the client really wants, what they need and when they want it. So for me, the first bit of all of this is around the client service aspect and really thinking about taking care of the client. In terms of most of the transactions and sort of scenarios you find yourself in, is this one quite commonplace? Are there any sort of unique elements or aspects to it? 
certainly this uh, shareholders agreement and the uh, terms in there look very familiar to uh, documents that we work on all the time. And I think it is, you know, clients very often uh, will phone up and say, can you just walk me through these provisions? Or I've got a few quick questions. Can you clarify them for me? And if the partner isn't available and they know that there is a trainee or an associate on the case matter, they will absolutely feel free to reach out to them. So I think, you know, this is a great experience for trainees. You know, uh, they will get the opportunity to have hands-on contact with clients, build their own relationships with clients, and really feel like they're a trusted advisor to that client. So, you know, great experience for them to be getting direct client contact. And of course, you were a trainee once. Um, if you were sort of being handed down uh, this test from from a partner or other sort of work allocator, what would sort of be going through your mind in terms of the first things you'd be doing and how you'd sort of break down this this task and get to hand to it? Uh, I think after I had had an initial panic moment of, <laughs> oh, wow, I actually need to do some real legal work now, um, then I would settle down. And I think the key, first of all, is to review the document carefully. I think, you know, as lawyers, and I think particularly as a trainee, one of the real value adds is where trainees are into the detail and they take the time to read things carefully. So many mistakes are made because people either panic or they rush and they therefore miss you know, key sentences, key words, which can entirely change the meaning of, of the response. So I think, first of all, definitely sit down. I would review it very carefully. I would uh, take some notes. Uh, and then I would really start thinking through the responses to the questions that the clients posed. And then just always take the time at the end to play back those answers to myself. Do they seem to make sense? Is that clear? And how can I take out any lawyer chat? I think very often we are uh, quite technical in our responses. And remember, particularly if you're dealing with a non-lawyer from a client, they really like you to speak the same language as them. So how can you play that back in a way that is entirely comprehensible if you are not a lawyer? So I think those are the key factors. Uh, and then the final piece would be really what I touched on at the start, which is think about the client service. The client wants to have a good experience with them. So how do you forge a relationship in a way that is both professional but shows your enthusiasm for that client? Fantastic. Uh, and I guess finally, any sort of common m mistakes or kind of uh, pain points the trainees might run into uh, or like a transaction like this one? Attention to detail. I cannot stress <laughs> that enough. Um, you know, it, it really is. Uh, attention to detail is absolutely critical. And it's often what the partner is really relying on the trainee for. Uh, anecdotally, I remember a transaction where we were getting ready to close the deal and the trainee had done a fantastic job of laying out all of the closing room. It was back in the day when you could actually meet in person. And uh, they had printed all of these wonderful cover sheets for every single document the client needed to uh, come in and sign. And the CEO of the client came in to sign. And I came down to the closing room about 10 minutes before they were due in. 
and realised that, unfortunately, the trainee on every single document had spelt the client's name wrong. So as the client is walking into the room, I am frantically ripping off cover sheets from documents. Um, you know, obviously, that was a mistake the trainee never made again because they realised that the importance of attention to detail. But it just is, you know, often that is the key component of what uh, the partner is really looking for the trainee to provide provide support on. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing a partner perspective. It'll be really interesting, at least for me, to sort of hear that and know that when I go to speak to the trainees in a second. But uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to me, Janan. Thanks, Harry. Okay, trainees. So I've just been away and spoken to Janan to get a partner perspective on all of this. It'll be really interesting to hear where all of your collective heads are at with this task so far. How you, what's your sort of first impressions? How are you finding it? I think we kind of all went through it quite nicely together, but I just know that as soon as Janan comes back, she's going to pick lots of holes. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very good way of putting it. I just noticed a couple of things when I was reading through and it's like, when she, you know, offered the opportunity to ask questions, I was looking at it and it's like, damn it, I could have asked this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think overall, overall we did well as a group, I think. Okay, I'll have to see if Janan matches your judgment when she comes back. And <laughs> so Janan, welcome back. It's been really interesting to hear your perspective on this task and then consequently the, the collective trainee opinion on this. Um, and this is the moment, the test, where it all comes together and the trainees put together their thoughts um, with this given scenario. So trainees, um, when you're ready and partner, take it away. Okay, perfect. I'm sure you're all going to excel on this. No, no pressure <laughs> at all. Um, okay, so the client has come in. They're very excited to receive uh, some advice in response to some questions that they've raised. So the first question from our client, Filmflix, is that they would like to consider transferring uh, all or some of their shares to a holding company once the joint venture has commenced. Is that permitted? What are your thoughts? Hi, hi, Janan. If I if I could pick this one, um, I think that's quite an interesting one um, because there are certain restrictions um, when it comes to the uh, transfer, particularly of some of the shares. So in this particular um, uh, question, they're saying that they want to transfer to a holding company. So that's actually a defined term within the, the draft agreement. Um, it's called an associated company, which does include um, any holding company um, or subsidiary of a shareholder, which um, includes a film flicks. So what that what the agreement, the draft agreement allows us to do under uh, clause 13.2 is that the shareholder may transfer all, but not just some, of its shares to an associated company. However, that's provided that it gives prior written consent to the uh, uh, to, of the transfer to the other shareholders, um, and it also that the uh, original transferring shareholder remains party um, and is jointly and severally liable. So that's an, a very important point on this. So it, it will not um, be exempt from the liability under this agreement. It will continue being a party, um, and also. Um, if, it see, if, if, if that holding company ceases being one or being an associated company, um, then this, uh, this thing kind of reverts back to how it was before. The, the shares need to be transferred back. And there was a, uh, some really interesting points as to, um, you know, it says prior written notice, but the draft 
doesn't currently give any details as to you know how how uh, how much notice needs to be given, which I think is is an important point um, to avoid any contention um, between the shareholders in the future. Um, for the um, kind of the thirteen point two B, I think we had. Um, you know, there's joint and several liability, but also there's the question of they've already given a guarantee under the loan. So would they would they be exempt under that? Would they have to? Um, would that have to be given by the holding company? And does that still stay with uh, FilmFlix? I think that's an important point that's not currently covered in the draft. Alex, I mean, a nice nice answer there. So if I think if I play that back to you. Um, you know, the clients come in and says, I, I might transfer some shares, I might want to transfer all of my shares after we start this joint venture. How can I do that? What can I do? Any trouble, any problem with me doing that? And I think, you know, as you rightly articulated, uh, under clause 13.2, they can transfer all of their shares if they want to. They need to jump through some hoops to do that, including give a notice and they need to accept that they'll continue to be liable and that ultimately, were they to ever restructure their group uh, and sell the party, the holding company they transferred those shares to, they would need to transfer them back. And so I think, you know, just playing that back to the client in a really nice, uh, relaxed way where we try to avoid the sort of legal speak will be very helpful for them. And I think think about just one question to them, which is, you know, if you're transferring to the holding company, uh, do you have any plans to restructure your group in the future that we would need to think through? Because if you transfer them... Under 13.2c, if you restructured, you might have to transfer them back. Mm, That's very good. That's basically applying it to the circumstances of what the client is, you know, planning to do in the future. Exactly. Very good point. Exactly. Yeah. And then maybe, uh, Amber, if we think about uh, the transfer here. So we've dealt with the scenario where the client wants to transfer all of those shares what about if they only wanted to transfer some of the shares? Um, I think that's restricted under the clause 13.2. So it says they may transfer all, but not some of its shares. And so what would they need to do if they really wanted to, if they said, no, no, we really, really need to transfer 25% of our holding? What would they need to do before they could do that? Yeah, I suppose they would just need to... Um, go back to this draft and redraft it with a carve out that they can transfer a certain portion of their holding um, and basically push back on this. Um, and I suppose you'd sort of ask the question to the other side, why do you care? And you know what are the restrictions if this is to an associated company? Actually, it's kind of immaterial which group company owns the shares. So you'd probably try and say, look, if you really think you you want to do this now or you're thinking you'll need to do this, so maybe you're thinking for tax reasons in the future you might want to do this, you want to tell them they want to nail this down now before they execute this agreement and go along this path because it'll be a lot more difficult to change later on. 
I think we might be uh, even more lucky, and I just had a quick look, but I think 13.1 says unless permitted by clause 13 or with the prior written consent of the other shareholders. So we might actually have a little loophole there to um, be able to, as long as um, the, 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 other, the other shareholder, assuming that's just Tusk developments at this stage, are happy um, to, to allow this, then it might be okay. So that would include any transfer outside of it being an associated company as well. Um, but they just would require that written consent. Yeah, that, and, and so that's exactly right. I mean, this is a fairly standard provision in a shareholders agreement or a joint venture agreement. Um, and in this scenario, you know, Matt, you sort of said, well, why would they care? Uh, and they possibly might not. I think typically uh, anybody you are forming a joint venture with wants to just deal with one one part of you uh, and not multiple companies, which is why it's typically a restriction on you transferring uh, some only of your shares. But in this scenario, as Alex rightly said, under 13.1, you would simply go and ask for permission and talk them through why this practically wouldn't be a, a problem for Tusk going forwards, maybe because the way that uh, they would operate their shareholding would be to just send one representative who could act for both companies. Um, but either way, you're right. If they really did only want to transfer some only, they would need prior written consent to do so. Okay, so the next question posed by our client is... Um, Filmflix is unable to grant guarantees without the permission of its lenders. Do you see any issues or concerns here? What if they wanted to grant some guarantees? So I think under the clause 6.3 of the draft agreement, it says that the shareholders um, will severally have to guarantee the bank uh, faculty, uh, facility, sorry, um, for the initial working capital for Space UK. So I think we'd need to take away more information which is set out in the Schedule 1, which we don't currently have oversight of, um, to provide that to our lenders for them then to provide permission for us to enter into that agreement. I don't know if Matthew or Alex had anything further to add. Yeah, I think just that it says to the extent required by the bank from time to time. Um, in 6.3, the shareholders shall severally guarantee the facility. Um, so I suppose we would just need to double-check if they are currently requiring it and find out a little more um, about that. Um, so it's not an immediate problem that we don't have consent if they're not asking for us to guarantee anything at this point. I was just about to say that, yeah, it's quite important to see what it what are the, you know, the existing lenders? How much have we given any security? Are there guarantees? And maybe just have a look at how these rank, the existing um, guarantees and security, how these actually rank, and how that will fit in with uh, with the new guarantee that we'll be giving. Um, but yeah, what, uh, what Matt and Amber highlighted, I uh, I completely agree with. I'm just going to say the final point as well, I think worth flagging, is that um, the the guarantee would be limited at least um, to the proportion of the the um, respective shares held. Um, so at least it's limited there too. So hopefully then our lenders would be pretty satisfied with that agreement. Yeah, and Amber, that's exactly right. So I think, you know, there is a... 
a technical response here, which is obviously under 6.3 of the scenario, um, FilmFlix may not be able to comply with its obligations to grant a guarantee without first getting the permission of its lenders. But practically speaking, what this will often involve is the client going off and having a conversation with the lenders. But first and foremost, you know, we would want to understand from Space UK the nature of the facility, the size of the facility, and then to understand from uh, our client's perspective whether there were any um, uh, abil- whether there was any ability under their own facility to uh, take advantage of any exemptions or whether it fell under certain uh, Uh, de minimis thresholds, whereby you didn't need the permission of the lenders. So it's quite a complicated answer here. I think so. The right answer is you may not be able to do this and we'd need to think about it a little bit further and we'd need to see your own financing documents and we'd need to understand a little bit more from Space UK about the facility, the working capital facility that they want to put in place, uh, including the amounts uh, and sort of the repayment terms. Okay, so moving on now to our next question. FilmFlix, our client, would also like to be able to grant security over the shares it's going to hold in Space UK. and it would like to grant that security to its own lenders. Would that be okay? What do we think? I think that for this one, based on the the current draft, I think the the answer is fairly straightforward in the sense that 13.1b says that um, no encumbrances over any of its shares would be would be allowed. Um, I was trying to see whether there's any. Um, possibility to maneuver this but i think i think it's quite although it goes back to that same point that we were discussing earlier that we might be able to subject to the written consent of the other shareholders so i suppose there is the same that same loophole that we had before so i mean again alex that's exactly correct so as currently drafted our agreement says under 131b you are not allowed as a shareholder to create encumbrances, including security, over your shares unless you get the shareholder's prior written consent. So in this situation, what we would be saying to our client FilmFlix is um, before you do that, you're going to need to go and talk to Tusk and get their consent to that and make sure they're comfortable with you allowing uh, your lenders to have security. And I would add, this is a very common provision in these scenarios, and it's very much because at the moment, Tusk has entered into a joint venture with our client. They know our client, they know who they're dealing with. If in the event of an insolvency of film flicks, the banks step in and enforce their security, suddenly Tusk are left with a 20% shareholder whose interests may not be aligned with their own, that they don't know, and that, frankly, the bank is highly likely to go and sell that, that share to somebody else. And that may not be something that Tusk wants to happen. 
So again, you know, in this scenario, we'd be giving our client the sort of clear instruction that under the draft, they're not allowed to do this. But that obviously, with respect to all of their funding plans, uh, including their current uh, lenders, they just want to have a conversation with Tusk. And it would be good to understand a little bit more from our client around what their, what their future funding strategy looks like uh, and any plans they may have from a financing perspective that we would need to take into account and work through the shareholders agreement with. I just want to ask uh, just a quick question I was going to ask on that. If, if it did uh, come to the point where the bank actually takes over the shares, is, is it the case that in some of these agreements there's some provisions where the bank would have to follow um, certain, would have certain obligations under the JV? Great, great question, Alex. We can tell that you've done a seat in banking and finance. Excellent. Um, exactly right. So again, it, it was know, very long hours. <laughs> <laughs> Glad they paid off in some way. Exactly. It's, it's all culminated in this moment on this podcast. Um, but <laughs> you are exactly right. So again, you know, so first of all, there is a restriction. I suspect Tusk would be very reluctant to allow uh, our client to grant security. But in the event that they did, and then in the unfortunate scenario where our client became insolvent and the bank had to enforce its security, there would be typically provisions under the shareholders agreement and in the articles which provide for certain restrictions or in fact allow Tusk to step in and buy those shares back, so have a preemption right over those shares. Um, that makes sense. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, there are a number of different mechanisms that Tusk would want to seek to protect themselves from suddenly finding themselves with a third party, the bank or another uh, third party that they never intended to do business with. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much for answering that. Okay. Our next question then. So, uh, on D, we move on. Can Filmflix block any decisions at the board level? So, when the board of directors of Space UK are meeting, what rights does Filmflix have to block any decisions that that board may take? Uh, Matt, maybe? Uh, yeah, they have quite limited rights because it's a board of six and it's three directors from Tusk and three from our client. And then Tusk gets the position of chair and the casting vote, um, unless otherwise agreed in writing by the shareholders. Um, so on the face of it, they wouldn't be able to block if everyone turned up and voted because you would presume all the Tusk directors would vote together and it would always go their way. Um, so if that's an issue, um, we would really want to think about other other ways to protect the client. So there are other ways of doing dispute resolution or if, for example, if this is just not going their way at all and they're just constantly being outvoted, then you might want to think, is there a way of them to get out of this agreement? Um, and then I suppose also something we said was about like that's quite a it's quite a difficult working relationship because we're presuming these two our client and Tusk 
don't know each other that well. You know, one's a British company, one's American, they're in different fields. So we had a bit of a discussion about like the working cultures between them and how they would need to be really sure that they're definitely on the same page about what this JV is going to do and how it's going to do it, um, if that's the situation. I think, Matt, you, you've, you've hit on the, uh, the right answer here. So if we think about this, we've got a board, as Matt just said, we've got a board here that is made up of six directors. You've got three directors that are film flicks appointees and three directors that are Tusk appointees. And they will sit and they'll make decisions about the company and hopefully they'll all agree. But in the unlikely event or sometimes very likely event that they don't agree um, and you effectively have a locked board. So in other words, you have the Tusk directors voting one way and the Film Flicks directors voting the other way. Our joint venture agreement says that the Tusk director has the right to appoint the chairman and that that chairman or woman uh, has the uh, right for a casting vote, which effectively means that they get to make the decider. So when we're uh, hanging on the edge and they need to make a decision one way or another, the Tusk appointed chairman can be the, the, the director that gets the final say to swing the vote presumably in Tusk's favour. Now, and this is, this is a fairly common scenario where you have a board where parties have rights to appoint an equal number of directors. Uh, the chairman will often have a casting vote. But in that scenario, our client Film Flicks will say, look, there are just certain things that are really, really important to us and we wouldn't want you to go and do unless we expressly agree to it. What do you think we could do to protect film flicks? Would there be anything we could do when we were drafting the shareholders' agreement by putting a provision in there to help us? So could we limit the board's decisions to... So at the moment it says they've got responsibility for the overall direction, supervision and management, but could we put an express provision in the agreement to state that um, they would always have to have a, an agreement both both parties if anything was to be rele relevant to finances or debt as, and liabilities, as you mentioned? Amber, that's exactly right. Absolutely perfect. So what we would typically see in our joint venture or shareholders agreement is um, a set of what we'd call reserved matters or shareholder matters. And what we will contractually agree amongst the parties in that agreement is without the consent of Filmflix as the minority shareholder that Tusk can't go off and the board can't go off and do certain things. And, for example, that could include things like incurring lots of debt or maybe hiring a new CEO or amending the articles of the company. Um, all of those things we would see typically listed out as a reserved shareholder matter, whereby... Uh, film flicks would have, in effect, a veto right 
So without Film Flicks agreeing to it, you cannot do that. Uh, and that, that would be fairly common to agree a limited uh, number of veto rights. Now, one thing I would say about this scenario where I think the case slightly differs from reality is it, it would be quite unusual. In our scenario, we have 20% of the shares being owned by Filmflix or, and 80% being owned by Tusk. Uh, it would be quite unusual for Filmflix to get an equal number of director appointments given that they are a minority shareholder. So clearly, when Filmflix were negotiating this uh, joint venture agreement. They did a very good job. They had excellent lawyers, <laughs> us, namely, where we got them superb rights under the document. So, you know, again, as with all things, you know, you need to read the agreement. But Amber, you're right. We would definitely look to put certain uh, rights into the agreement whereby Filmflix could block those decisions being taken. So I'm going to move on to our final question, if I may. So we outlined right at the beginning that Space UK as this exciting company is going to be building a launch site, I'm assuming for some form of rocket. It doesn't actually say, but let's just assume it's very dramatic and we want to go into space. So they're going to be building a launch site in Hull, um, and so the question now becomes, given the purpose of our joint venture vehicle, uh, what areas would we be focused on if we were asked by Filmflix to do some due diligence? What would we like to think about? And maybe, Amber, I'll throw it back to you at this point. What would we be worried, concerned, excited to learn about? So I think as a group, we were discussing this a bit earlier and I think Matthew also touched on it briefly. Um, we were saying about how, because it's a joint venture and we have um, less control over Space UK with only 20% investment, we'd want to understand about the decision-making and strategy behind um, Tusk because if their culture and decisions are very different to what our clients would uh, decide um then that might um make us consider actually is this the right relationship for us moving forwards i think the other thing to consider as well is whether um so task wholly owns space uk at the moment and understanding actually who are the shareholders within that organization because if they're state-owned for example we might want to look further into um anti-money laundering and bribery and corruption just to make sure that if they have got these um more power over decision making as well that it aligns with our values that's some risk and compliance uh background showing there yeah i do love doing anti-money laundering in my role <laughs> Oops. Good job. Um, yeah i think alex was also touching upon a point earlier as well about intellectual property alex do you want to talk about that I just wanted to add a, a point about 
we obviously have this joint venture when one company is doing is focusing on movies it's basically media and the other one is construction so obviously one company will have much more control as to what happens with that launch because they'll probably be the ones dealing with the actual uh, construction that being that being tusk so it's quite interesting for film flicks to be you know very aware of how that's happening you know how that will be how that will go ahead whether we've got all the planning permissions necessary with a the launch there's a lot of environmental things to consider so um you know the the, the, the noise where is it going to happen how the people in hell are going to feel about this so uh you know all these things are quite important and obviously they'll be very detached from film flicks's experience in in anything up to this point so presumably i don't know they might be doing this quite regularly but i mean that's quite a, a, a novel investment that they're making there so it's quite quite an interesting one I was wondering whether the other points to discuss is about um, understanding kind of any restrictions on the land that they'll be using for the launch as well, um, because obviously if that's what we're uh, recording, if they can't, if they start constructing it, but then can't actually launch the rocket or whatever we're launching off into the sky, um, we may want to take that into consideration too. Yeah, that's exactly right. All, all of the above. So we would definitely want to understand, do they own the land? Can they use the land? What environmental issues would they need to consider? Fairly certain you can't just go launching a space rocket in your back garden. <laughs> uh, what licenses and consents they might need. And, and I think you both hit on some really nice points there around compliance, definitely. Uh, I think one area that we are increasingly seeing all of our clients focused on is compliance um, and you know not just uh, looking at does a company have the right policies in place but within their ethos are they uh, following a compliant culture so I think they'd be interested in that uh, and then I think the nice point you touched on was around more of the well, what do the people in Hull think about this? Because I think increasingly we need to take into account the sort of PR, the media, which our client film flicks will be very focused on, impact of SpaceX. And you know, if, for example, there is lots of protesters, people aren't happy about this, the people of Hull do not like the idea of a space rocket being launched in the middle of the city centre. Um, is that still an investment we want to take? And so I think, you know, as lawyers, we're looking at obviously all of the legal aspects to this, but it's also very relevant to be aware of those social and cultural issues so that when we're advising our clients on a due diligence exercise, our advice is as practical as possible. Clients don't really like 400-page reports which tell them about all the risks and issues with absolutely no solutions. Um, so, you know, I think, again, really important that we get to the point and, and really articulate any uh, real concerns in the project. My supervisor, when I was in banking, told me the importance of an executive summary in any long report. And that is basically the reason why. Just give them what they want to hear, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I always used to miss it out. And, you know, and I think for, for you guys as trainees, um, it, it's a real skill to learn that. Um, 
you know, I think uh, as you go through your career, you will get asked to do lots of different tasks. Uh, Due diligence in those first few years will be a big part of that. And I think sometimes you can feel a little bit fatigued by it and go, oh, God, more documents to review. But I, I honestly encourage you to keep energetic about it because what you're really learning, albeit somewhat subliminally, is the art of judgment. And that is absolutely crucial. The more diligence you do, the more you get a grip of risks and issues, the better you will become at helping clients take a judgment call on risk. And that's essential. Fantastic. Well, trainees, take a sigh of relief. That concludes the test. I'm sure that's a big weight lifted off your shoulders. Um, Just everyone's initial reactions to, to finishing. How did you find the whole experience? It's definitely harder than I thought it was going to be, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But thinking about, yeah, how how did I do this when I had the interview for the Vax game? I don't know how I did something similar when I didn't even work as a lawyer. I don't know how I answered. I, I'm like that, cringing that thinking point. about the answers I gave in my uh, TC interview because they're probably so awful. Um, but yeah, no, it was fun. It's nice to just chat through these issues and. It's always really interesting to like hear a totally different angle from like the other trainees on an issue I never thought of, or from Janan, who's like using her experience and being able to say, "Well, this is what the client will care about." That's just really cool to hear. It's always super helpful. So, yeah. I was just going to add, Matt. That's that's a, a, a great summary of it. I was just going to add to uh, what you said. I'm like I'm drawing so much from what I've done at the LPC, and obviously Amber, you haven't done. The I LPC haven't done yet, the LPC. Have you? No. no, and you, you've you've done absolutely brilliantly because obviously I'm drawing a lot from not just my time with the fund, but also you learn a lot at the LPC. So anyone listening to this that are thinking, "Oh my God, I would never have thought of." this it's like don't worry we didn't either at the interviews uh actually that's the whole point of these podcast series so that we can give you at least an idea of you know what to think about these stuff and you're not expected to be lawyers before joining that's not the that's not the point but it's about how you think and also like i think oh i have never i would never think of that is kind of probably going to be the story of my career you know that's not going to be something that, that's going to end as a trainee you know that's kind of the whole point is like we work in teams uh in the work we do in the firm because everyone does still have discussions like this and different angles and that's just how it is so yeah it's perfectly normal and a really good thing if you're not picking up everything because you don't have to You've all been absolutely fantastic. And I think to any uh, future trainee listening to this podcast, uh, you're not supposed to know everything. Uh, It doesn't matter how long you have been in the legal profession. It would be an incredibly boring day in the office uh, if we knew everything. (laughs) So please approach any of these tasks at any firm that you go and interview at with enthusiasm, with a bit of common sense, and uh, I'm sure you will be absolutely fine. We are not looking for you guys to come in and know the answer to everything. What we'd really like you to do is just have a really good go at it and see where you get to. And I think that's important. It's important you enjoy the experience and take something out of it. And I think, Matt, you hit on just such a wonderful point, which is teamwork. Uh, 
it would be a very, very um, lonely profession if we didn't work in teams. And I think the nicest thing about the firm is we always work in teams. And if I don't know the answer, I can always pick up the phone to my colleague in any country where there is a baker office and ask them a question. And no question is ever silly. And it's always really nice to talk through a problem for a client to come up with a holistic solution. And that's what we try to do at all times. And we can't do that if we just work in isolation. So, you know, the the collaborative culture is a real thing and it makes us better lawyers if we do work together as a team. Fantastic. Well, a huge thank you to the four of you. It's been really interesting to see this test develop and to get each of your different perspectives on this as the test has gone on. Uh, We hope you, the listener, have found this sort of glimpse into Trainee Life at Baker's really insightful. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the other episodes of the Trainee Test Podcast series for other challenges that trainees have faced previously, as well as the Baker's London Graduate Recruitment site and Instagram page for all of the latest on upcoming events, application deadlines and more.